Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Lori Penny, you guys, she is also an award-winning author, columnist, journalist, and screenwriter. She has seven books out, and they are available in our store at Skylight. And if you don't have them, we'll get them for you for sure. And she's also been a screenwriter, and she's worked with HBO and on Amazon. And she lives between London and Los Angeles, and she's fabulous. And I heard the rumor that she just got married. So we're excited about that as well. (laughs) And she's in conversation, of course, with the amazing Chelsea Summers, who is a writer whose work focuses on sex, politics, tech, fashion, and culture. She is a former academic and professor with a PhD training in 18th century British literature, which is incredible to me. And that has proven to be shockingly useful when she's been writing about contemporary culture. She was a columnist for the now-defunct Adult Magazine, and she has a piece upcoming in Roxanne Gay's Medium series, and her work has appeared on Vice, Fusion, Hazlet, The New Republic, Racked, and The Guardian. She splits her time between New York and Sweden, where she is right now in the middle of the night. So you guys, please welcome the very, very talented Chelsea Summers. Hi, Chelsea. Hey, thanks so much for having me. It's great to uh, virtually be in L.A. There. It's so, so exciting to be here with you guys. Oh, she's gone. Well, there's only two of us. <laughs> We're alone now. <laughs> um, so before Chelsea um, starts reading, um, I just wanted to say an additional hello and thank you to everybody for coming. And um, I have known Chelsea, who um, I know as Janice, but I'm going to keep on doing And if I mumble it and go Chelsea or Janice, um, please forgive me. <laughs> Um, uh, but uh, I have known Chelsea since I was 26, which was quite a long time ago now. And um, when she was my fairy godmother in New York City, and um, I was actually staying on her sofa for really a surprisingly long time um, while this book was in its, you know, infant baby stages and got to see all the different stages of it. And I'm just so, so, so excited and honoured to be at. To, to be one of the people to introduce it and um, it's so wonderful seeing it out in the world um, and uh, uh, Janice Chelsea is going to read sorry is going to read from one of my favorite passages of it and then we're going to have a little chat and um, then I will open up to questions from you guys from the side and if there aren't uh, I will have many but um Yeah, uh, we'll read for a couple of minutes, and uh, please take it away. Enjoy. Cool. 
Thanks. Um, so uh, my book's about a serial killer food critic. Um, just as most people don't wake up and become a murderer, most don't wake up and become a food critic, but I did. Embracing this particular skill set felt like slipping into a bespoke garment, something cut to flatter my exact idiosyncratic body. And yet, however much I feel put on this planet to instruct people on how, what, and why they should eat, I am compelled to admit that my vocation as food critic wouldn't have been possible without men. I owe them so much. In 1990, you had to squint to glimpse the internet looming. In today's death-rattling time of newspapers and magazines, it's hard to recall that just a quarter century ago, print was basking in a halcyon moment. It seemed as if every day of the early 90s hatched a new four-color magazine. It was a dizzying time of weighty glossies with oddly specific names like Egg, Paper, George, Spy, Blurt, and Spin. These magazines, I believe, foretold the days of single-word restaurant names, plum, parm, sauce, supper, den, carnivore, and home. Ideas, prints, pr sorry, ideas, print, writers, and money mushroomed with sweet yeastiness. One begat another, which begat another, which begat another, and before you knew it, you had a giant amorphous mass of words and people, pages and layouts, advertisers and editorials, subscriptions and readers, all demanding constant feeding. During these Twin Peaks, Pretty Woman, Ice Ice Baby Days, and Cocaine-Fueled Nights, ideas grew with fungal fecundity, but relationships were traded like currency. It was all about whom you knew, whom you blew, and whom you'd yet to screw. You just had to be at the right cocktail party, at the right gallery opening, at the right restaurant, in the right club's bathroom, doing the right drug, on the right coast, in the right tight black skirt, thighs pressed to the right person, in order to find your name on a masthead of some slick publication. And that was the way I found myself the food critic for noir. I remember the night I found myself in Beignet, wedged beside Manhattan playboy Andrew Goshen on the restaurant's beige Nubuck banquette. Over the thudding bass of CNC Music Factory in a sea of upended vodka shots, I shouted that the braised Malpec oysters and lemongrass creme tasted like a 15-year-old boy's fantasy of cunnilingus. I remember Andrew heard me and laughed. I remember going home with him. I remember vaguely some assertively athletic sex that ended in a misfire. I remember waking in Andrew's Tribeca loft, and I remember his sperm drawing on my belly like donut glaze. Andrew propped on one elbow, looking at me appraisingly. I want you to be the food critic for my new magazine, he said. Noir, he said, would take a dark sideways look at culture, fashion, politics, art, and pretense. I'd be perfect, he said. Of course, I said, drawing an idle doodle with his spunk. He'll pay me $4,000 a column. We sealed the deal with a sloppy kiss and a squelchy fuck. I say I woke up and found myself a food critic, but it's equally true that my life's sinuous lines led me to my career. 
Looking back on it now, as I often do, prison really facilitates introspection. I feel as if I was raised to write about food. Just as dairy cows are raised to give milk, nebbiolo vines are cultivated to make wine, or civet cats were created to defecate the world's best coffee, I was raised to give voice to food's consumption. In retrospect, it seemed fated to be, and much to my distaste, it begins with my mother. You see, unlike most Americans born in the early 60s, I was reared on handcrafted food. Like Daniel Ballou, I never ate store-bought bread unless I was at a restaurant. I never ate store-bought anything. My mother made her own bread, kneading it with measured sensuality, dough drying in the crescents under her fingernails. She grew her own tomatoes, then she canned them, and she used those jarred tomatoes to make fragrant cassoulet, salty steam rising as from a bagno. She drove to the dairy and carted home great pails of unpasteurized milk, from which she then made her own butter, yogurt, and creme fraiche, creamy yellow cups of it. She'd pour it unguent and fragrant and drizzled with honey over berries, sunwarm and brambly. My mother grew the berries and kept the bees, too. She made it, she made it all, and she made it well. She stood with arms akimbo in her Connecticut garden. She strode her kitchen as a colossus. In our small world, she was the great, ever-giving mother, maker of mysterious soups, magical stews, peerless, fluffy loaves of bread, shiny fruit tarts glowing like family jewels, crispy, juicy, brown hunks of roasted meat, vegetables cooked so crunchy tender that your teeth wept, salads that slayed you, all from produce grown in my mother's own meticulously kept garden or from ingredients sourced with an alchemist's care. My mother was a witch in the kitchen and a Demeter in the garden, and we hated her for it. My father worked all day, churning out advertising copy with an electric mind that crackled and popped with syntactic snaps. His kinetic brain prickled with quick, thick witticisms that sold stuff well and reliably. He worked long, late hours, time that, as it turned out, was punctuated with a series of mistresses, women whose identities blurred furry into a string of pronouns and epithets. Her, she, that one, that bitch, your whore. I'd hear my parents argue in raw, hushed tones, my mother making a show because propriety demanded it. In truth, she expected more integrity from the jars of preserves in her pantry. A man given to 68 to 80 hour work weeks, my father's home was less his castle and more his weekend office. My mother, who ruled her our home with a flowered fist, was nominally, philosophically, and aesthetically French. Her francophilia inflected her speech, her cooking, and her red lipstick that she wore even when tending her organic garden, her hair tied up in a careful bun, giant gloves on her hands, faded cotton jacket on her back, and wellies on her feet. 
Her faux Frenchness enabled her to roast a chicken to succulence, then take that chicken and, with a shaman's magic, turn it into an evolving kaleidoscope of meals. Roasted chicken became chicken in aspic, chicken sandwiches, chicken stock, chicken with dumplings. My mother made a roast chicken stretch forever, an unblinking eternity of chicken. Taking her work as head nurturer seriously, my mother lived to feed her three children, my two younger siblings, one son and another daughter, and me from her garden, her pantry, and her larder, places defined by my mother's necromantic abilities, Protestant, Protestant determination, and single-minded snobbery. Protestant, after all, because my mother was fake French. She was like a gilded Louis XIV chair in a despot's palace, a knockoff. In contrast to my ever-present stay-at-home mom, my father was a presence in equal parts ephemeral and unchanging. He smelled like tobacco and brown liquors. His voice sounded like an emery board. He carried his slender body with a slight resigned defeat, even as he made the kind of money and owned the kind of property and gave his Gen X children the kind of education that defines privilege. My father was always precisely dressed. Brooke brother, Brooks Brothers during the week, L.L. Bean on the weekends, and Ralph Lauren for special occasions. He complimented the wood beam and cotton duck farmhouse like he'd been purchased to match. Limited as my father's home life was, you could set your watch by his presence, even if that presence felt as solid and as visually perfect as a cinematic projection. Together, my parents constructed a Potemkin village for our nuclear family. It looked good from the outside. But every family has secrets, and my family's was me. Thank you very, very much. Um, You're welcome. Uh, I hope everybody else enjoyed that as much as me. It's wonderful to hear it read when you kind of you've kind of like gobbled it up on the page and it really is a delicious like I really really encourage you guys to to buy it and read it and underline it particularly I don't know I'm going to shock you now I'm really really sorry Chelsea but this is my copy which is I've kind of bashed a bit because I've been carrying it around for weeks so, but um there's something sensual I don't normally like the sort of I'm not like I don't fetishize the physical aspect of books or ways, but there's something because there is something so physical and visceral about the story you're telling. I feel like it's it's good to have it in your hands and hold it and like experience it with all your senses. It's um, it's really an extraordinary book. And thank you. Um, oh, I, I mean, you know, it's but like I was thinking about this earlier this week, and like when you've when you when you when you care about someone who is making a piece of art i think in some ways it's impossible to sort of to feel about it in the same way that that you can feel about a piece of art either when you come to it fresh when it's finished or when you're the one making it because if you're experiencing a book like this and you don't know you then it seems obvious that this had to exist and 
you know, watching you make it, like in your brain and your heart, it was clearly obvious that this book had to be written and it had to exist. But if you care for someone who is an artist, I think your your understanding of the work of art has to include the possible future where it doesn't exist for some reason and you still love that person. Mm-hmm. So there's a particular kind of suspended belief where like because like nobody I mean I hope I wouldn't be friends with anybody who would not like me if I failed to complete one of my books or or something like that but like I am so so thrilled that it that it's turned out the way it has and I'm so pleased that it's getting at least some of the recognition it deserves I say at least some you know you've got your New York Times review and your everything but like it's not for me to say whether like you know I think it deserves to be in in the New York Times every week because it's wonderful. (laughs) Um, But um, one thing I was going to ask to start with, which might be fun and um, or not. um, And by the way, everybody start thinking of of your questions and typing them in the box. um, Is I have seen on Twitter that um, the book has become popular enough already that men on the Internet are explaining it to you. Mm hmm. I was wondering if you might share some of the more ridiculous ways in which it has been explained. Yeah, so uh, there was one guy who called it a a distaff American psycho, um, which was cool because then I had to go and look up the word distaff. I was going to ask. So a distaff is actually part of a a spinning wheel. So Uh it's it's a synecdoche synecdoche for women's labor Uh because women were the people who spun you know yarn into Uh uh, wool into yarn right so a distaff american psycho is like well it's cute it's you know it's a it's a girly good job you know um then there was another guy who wrote uh that it was um that it, it didn't have any this book didn't have any uh right to be as well written as it was Wow. Yeah. Um, so it, like there's there is a sense of uh, uh, a certain amount of um, uh, like I, I wouldn't say anger, but I would say kind of like spite or 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 hurt like uh, hurt feelings over somebody a, a woman writing a book where men get killed and eaten um and then there have been various people who like you know pop into my mentions and tell me that you know women um maybe someday will become serial killers like men as women uh take over the same kinds of roles that men have in culture currently as if i didn't do my research and i'm not aware of you know legions of women who killed you know multiple people um whether it's elizabeth bathory you know killing off a, a hundred serfs or whether it's you know like women in Victorian age who killed off their whole families to get to get insurance money. So uh, yeah, it's interesting. It's so funny because it's that double threat, isn't it? Because like because there is this delicious book that you have made, uh, which is kind of one in the eye. Particularly because I mean, it's fairly it's fairly obvious why some people are making the Brett Easton Ellis and the American Psycho reference, and of course. 
that book in particular and Brett Easton Ellis in general are so totemic for a certain kind of masculinity. Mm-hmm. And because I mean, in all fairness, like I loved, I, I love American Psycho. Like <laughs> I read it, I read it when it came out. I read it <clears throat> again very early on in the process of me writing this book because I it was important to me to have a sense of like, well, how do I how do I write gore in a way that makes sense? How do I capture this kind of very visceral, very, very, um, you know, bloody kind of prose? And I thought, I thought American Psycho did it really, really well. And so I read it very early and then I never looked at it again. Um, and, but I do think that there is a kind of, of thing where, you know, Brett Easton Ellis and, and American Psycho functions as a, it's like a, you know, it's one of the books that you're allowed to have on your bookshelf mm. for a lot of men and not and, and feel like that's a that's like a, a badge on your on your on your belt. Um, yeah. So it's it's uh, it, it, I think that there is a sense of like a woman taking uh, an idea of that narrative and reconfiguring it that um, makes do some some dudes, not all, you know, really quite cranky. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's a threat for more it's not just sort of existentially threatening because it's about a woman who kills men and eats them it's because of the specific position of, of it and it's also obviously it's not simply positioned as one in the eye to american psycho it wouldn't work if it was right. um one of the major differences like one of the things i love about it actually and and please i'd love you to speak on this is the um that passage that you just read is is one of my favorites and one that comes right after it when you talk it's in the section called junk food i don't know french fries when you talk about junk food and you talk about learning femininity as well your character learning femininity as performance and how great it is to eat uh, all the junk food that was forbidden and that it's both true and untrue and um i love the the aspect of performative womanhood in it, which is both, you know, artificial and real and enjoyed, for me it links into this, one of the things that is very different from, say, a Brett Easton Ellis writing is the fact that the book is, Brett Easton Ellis is writing and a lot of other writing that is sort of performatively spare from that era. I'm thinking also of, you know, your, your Douglas Cook, right, like, you're very... Yeah, yeah. Um and um and also um uh Crash. Sorry, who wrote Crash? You you'll know it. But, um, um the yeah, guy. I, yeah. Uh, that uh, guy. Ballard. Anyway. That yes, Bud, sorry. Thank you. Thank you, Frank. <laughs> um there is something of this book, when whether you're describing the food or describing the sex, there is something juicy and luscious and every single line is worked over like a delicious meal it's a it's a gourmet book right every single line has been worked over and form follows function in that way and it is kind of about desire it's about lust and desire and wanting things and it's and that in some way links the kind of because the danger of still the danger of femininity is a femininity that is insatiable, that wants things, but wants things in this book in a very kind of 
controlled way. You, you're not just hungry, you're hungry for this specific kind of deliciousness. And that is very different from the, you know, the channeling of the 80s nightmare of, um, you know, spare the spare, lean, psychopathic imagination. Yeah, um, I mean, so I I think like the, 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 the Baroque, you know, lush language came very much from another 80s writer who is um, one of my favorites, who is Angela Carter. Um, so like they're, they're like the... As I wrote this book, um, I did want to not as not in the first draft, but as I was rewriting it and polishing the manuscript, I wanted to do a kind of homage to eighties literature, which formed me as a reader because I turned, you know, I turned eighteen in nineteen eighty, um, and. I also wanted to bring to the page a sense of of excess and a sense of of sensuality. It's really interesting to me to write things that require me to cross that synactic gap between physical experience and uh, linguistic expression. Um, and one of the ways that seemed to make sense in writing this book and doing that was to layer, you know, almost like like frosting or like, you know, deglazing a pan or like a, you know, like a tiramisu or turducken, like a sense of, of things being cooked inside of other things or layered on top of other things. And I, I tried to do that a lot with the language. It's very, and it's one of the things that makes it so witty as well. Like you have this ability to choose a word that is perfect and it's perfect in the way that you can, it's like you can taste it in your mouth, like a seasoning. Like you you, you talk about your mother's necromantic abilities in the passage you mm -hmm. just read. I'm like, oh yeah, because she brings dead things. To, oh yeah, oh, that's perfect. Oh yeah. And in some, it makes the prose, it's such a, it's a deliberate and brilliant choice because there's the other kind of prose, which is, um, which is transparent and just drops you entirely into the narrative and it's like a window pane but this is more like a like a mirror and a light show you know you have you you have to read it slowly like you'd have to sort of taste delicious wine slowly um it's not the point is not to get drunk the point is to taste it and it's um I love that aspect of it in a way that again is very different from some of the more sort of bared down quote unquote masculine prose although there are a lot of female writers who do it um it makes me think of Jeanette Winderson as well um mm -hmm. and that um I don't know if baroque for me is I know it's what's technically called it but it's all that lushness in language is what is very very valuable about it and it also makes me I know you can't say very much about the um tv deals that may or may not have been done about it but it was it makes me think um, like how, you know, how could this be adapted to a screen thing? Because it's something, what I love in literature is when I read something and I'm like, oh yeah, this, this works as a book. Um, yeah, I mean, like, I think that, uh, I think that the, the, the style of the book is something that's very circular, very, uh, inverted. 
Um, the, the narrative is never like, you know, it doesn't start at the beginning and go to the end. Mm -hmm. It tells you that from the, from the outset. Um, and part of that had to do with the character who was telling the story. I mean, she's an untrustworthy narrator. She's somebody who is, um, psychopathic. And so she's, she's very keen on manipulating people and manipulating the, the reader, um, just because she's uh, telling the story and, and thereby confessing to the murders, you know from the very beginning that she's in prison. The question becomes not, you know, like, does she get caught? The question becomes, well, why is she telling us? Like, yeah. what is what is the payoff for her telling us? Because you know, there's there's from the from the start, that's that's a big question. Well, why? Why would you announce these things that nobody knows about? Um, so I think like the it, it it was a thing that as I was writing the book, I thought very intensely about how to tell the story in in from the point of view of a woman who's in her fifties in prison has done these things has been a food writer you know and and wants to put this on the page. Um, and and taking, you know, doing it in the form of a memoir, just to loop back to some of the stuff you mentioned about, you know, uh, junk food and femininity, um, it allowed me to go on to these tangents and write about things that I've been angry about or I've been frustrated about throughout the course of my life. So um, Dorothy Daniels, my protagonist, is a like just a, you know, a, 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 just a thundering, she's a, she's a blistering thundercunt. And, um, like, and, and I got, I got a lot of joy in being able to kind of let loose these, these thoughts and these, these emotions, these moments when I get to be, you know, express myself as, as angry or, or, or dark or, you know, in that I would never do in real life on the, through my, you know, through my character, um, Dorothy. So it, it was, it was a, a chance to talk about stuff that I, that has confused me or, or made me angry. And then it was a chance to like, you know, explore these various things. And it was a chance to like, get into a character who uh, who I found really really awesome. I love it's her. It's so fun. It's so fun to be in her head. Um, and and even with the little word choices, you kind of think that like, especially if it's a, it, but it's true that so Angela Carter and Jeanette Wonderson, very like they sometimes write in the first person, but it's a qualified first person where you never know who is speaking. Right. And I, I don't believe Angela Carter does. That's just, you know, listen, with this person, you know who is speaking. And there is the very kind of and it must be for somebody to choose words in that way and think in that precise way. It feels very much like you you imagine living in a psychopath's head would feel like everything is very deliberate. But at the same time, it is this part of the joy is the sense this is a person who is completely in control of the, all the things that 
as women and assigned female people were meant to think of as uncontrollable desires. And she owns all of them, both the ones that are socially sanctioned and, well, none of them are socially sanctioned, but like the ones that are legal and not legal. Like there is this very deliberate and joyous interplay between the desire to eat, the desire to fuck, and the desire to kill. Um, and I, I don't mind telling people, like, so I've been, you know, reading the full thing this week and last week, and um, it, um, like, spoiler, like, full warning for those who have yet to read it, it, um, it makes you want to do at least two of those things. And, um, <laughs> like, I, I had dinner, and, you know, I sort of dragged my then fiancé into the bedroom, and then we were rolling, we kind of afterwards, I opened it to the bit where you say, like, um, admit it, you're wondering what your lover would taste like right now, aren't you? Like, look over, and I was like... <laughs> well, I mean, I think, you know, I, there is the, the, you know, we have, we use the metaphor of a, an all-consuming love um, so often that we don't think about it. You know, we use a language of, of eating when we talk about love on a regular basis. Mm. Um, and you know, there's a, a sense of like, when you are in love, when you're with somebody, if you're, you know, even if you're not in love, you're just, and you're deeply in lust with somebody where your, your bodies are enmeshed as if you were digesting them or they digesting you. Um, and so it was, uh, like the, the book was a way for me to write about that experience without, you know, writing about that experience. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I, I, I'm very interested in the, the kinds of metaphors that we use to understand, um, abstract concepts like love. Um, and so there are, you know, there are a few moments in the book when she meditates on these ideas of like, well, you know, like, like, you know, why do we fall in love? You know, what does, you know, what, what's about, what is it about a cleaver? You know, um, why do you cleave someone to your breast? Um, you know, like it's, there's a, so the, the, the book was also an exploration of how we think about, you know, these abstract notions. And it's, that's what is, it's a very, it's a book that wears its intellectualism lightly and deftly. Um, I was going to ask, um, what was the, I was going to ask what the hardest bit to research was because there's clearly a lot of research that's gone mm -hmm. into part of it but again there's parts of it knowing about your life and that you've, you've been a critic in some respects and I know you love Italy like what bit didn't come naturally apart from as far as I'm aware you've never actually killed anything yeah any you know person. so I spent a lot of time researching um the raising and butchering of animals I for a variety of reasons. I spent a lot of time researching, you know, like very arcane bits of like, you know, how do you get from one place to another? Um, and I have to 
say that sometimes I, I nailed it. Um, and then other times it was brought to my attention by the fact checker who uh, was hired by Audible that I really got things because this was originally an Audible exclusive and then it became in, in print this year um, that I really got things very, very wrong. So um, the it, it, it like everything I, I researched things from like what makes Mediterranean shrimp mediterranean shrimp as opposed to north american shrimp to like how do you kosher butcher something to uh like what do truffle dogs do to you know if you were going to have a book tour through the the west coast where would you go if you were a food writer i mean it was there was a there was a lot of stuff that was uh that went into it and um the way that i can best express the the process of writing this book was it was a little bit like reading a book because I went in not really knowing how it was going to be. It was a little bit like doing academic research because there were all of these things that I had to to um, to look at in order to make it you know whole and and work and read real. Um, you know, from the inside of Bedford Hills prison and, and what foods they serve to, you know, how would you find a, how would you get a, a, a fake passport if you wanted to? I'm sure I, like my Google searches put me on some kind of list, um, you know, and then, and then the third part was like problem solving because while Dorothy is brilliant, she, and, you know, she's generally fairly controlled when things go awry for her, she, um, she panics. And so did I. And so there were a couple of moments in the book where I'm like, this isn't working. I'm going to have to scrap this whole scene, start it all over. And I was like, actually, no, I can like, I can act as if these are problems that Dorothy has to solve as she is doing this set of actions. And so how does she solve these problems in a way that makes sense for the narrative? So it was kind of these three things coming together and holding hands. It's, and like somebody has just said in the chat as well, you can see there are, there are some books where you can just see the work that's gone into it. Um, on every level, on the line level and the research level. Um, there's a, I know we only have a little bit longer for us to talk, and there's a couple more things I wanted to ask. One of them was, I'd love it if you could talk a little bit about, and again, obviously, you started writing this before the Me Too era and the idea of... Yeah, it started um, in 2011. Yeah, and um, but the the bit that I read this and I'm like, that's brilliant, and also... So it's going to be so terrifying for men to read, um, is the bit before, chronologically, before Dorothy actually starts killing, is the bit where she like, obsessively collects information about all the guys she sleeps with in order to uh -huh. manage her reputation, in order to control. And there's this brilliant line, which um, is, uh, what is the information is like a feral cat. It wants to be free. It also wants to bite. Mm -hmm. um, which is just, yeah. yeah, if you could speak to that, that'd be wonderful. Yeah. So I was really interested in, you know, like one of the things I did a lot of research about, um, psychopaths, uh, criminal psychopaths, but also psychopaths in general. And, uh, and there was very, very little about women psychopaths. Um, 
And so I, I, you know, I thought about like, well, if you were a psychopath, like what would really make your world make sense and how would, you know, what would upend it? Um, and the idea of control was really fascinating to me because, um, I, I like that's, it's kind of foreign to me. I'm just not like, it's not how I live my life. Um, but I love this, I, you know, I loved this idea that she, she would research all of these people that like how she went through college, she would, you know, research everybody that she slept with in order to have a hold on them and keep them from, you know, doing the locker room or, or, you know, drunk boy talk. Um, and then she kind of took that skill set with her as she as she got older and that was how she became a writer and a and a critic and a journalist um yeah so it you but i think like i think dorothy would have been pretty dismissive of me of hashtag me too i think she would have just been like you know like when somebody does her wrong they're dead to her sometimes literally and there is that yeah. scene as well, which again, I don't want to spoil it too much, but there is there is a rape scene in this book, and it's different mm -hmm. from any rape scene I have ever read before. And you know, I read a lot of books about women and you know, so there's lots of them, but what is it the lies like I'm I'm being raped? Fascinating. You almost hear it in Dr. Spock voice, fascinating. Yeah. And yeah. then it's never mentioned again. Yeah. Like because sometimes yeah. that's not the most important thing in somebody's history. Yeah, you know, um, I believe in a wide pantheon of rape stories and, and a wide array of reactions to rape. Um, I think for some people, it is the worst thing, the most devastating thing, the most horrifying thing. And I think for other people, it's not. Um, and I'm not judging either response or anything that falls in the, you know, in, in the spectrum or really the ball of reactions. Um, but I wanted, I wanted to write that, that little moment because, um, it was, uh, it was not a thing that directly motivated her, but I do think, you know, there is a, uh, like you live enough time on the earth as a woman and you um, experience enough, you have enough experiences that make you angry. Um, and she's angry. She is an angry 50 something year old woman. Um, and so that was just one of the moments that even though her reaction is, oh, fascinating, like, I think, I think there is, you know, I think there is a sense of like, this is part of that bricolage of experiences over the course of her life that has, you know, enraged her. It's, uh, I like it, the bit where the, uh, where she's edged out of her magazine as well mm -hmm. it's just is wonderful in the response to that and the uh, sorry I'm not going to spoil it for people I can just like I have to remember that other people are in the room you know <laughs> I'll call you later um I wanted we have a couple more minutes and if um I've got another little question but I'll save it if um if people are a little slow on the questions and we'll open it up now to uh questions from the audience um could people type them in the box if you can that would be wonderful and I will read them out 
I see four ask a questions at the bottom. I don't know if that means anything. Oh, yes. Ah, thank you very much. Uh, that's the bit I have to click. Um, the last one is, um, uh, oh, here's, um, what was your feedback from publishers on this book? Okay. That's so interesting I, one. I, yeah, it's, it's good. Um, I think we, my agent and I had a, in total, somewhere around 25 rejections. Um, the first 15 or 18 uh, came before we sold it to Audible, and then the remainder came before we sold it to Unnamed. Um, the first batch really boiled down to one word, which was ew. I got a rejection that was that literally the woman literally said, uh, she's too good at writing gore. Um, I had other people who were like, you know, like I don't consider myself squeamish or prudish, but when I got to redacted, uh, I could, I, I had to stop reading this book. So it's a pass. Um, it was a lot of people who were just, you know, and these were editors at, you know, all of the imprints at the big houses. I got, you know, rejected at least once. Um, in general, multiple times. And it was only the brilliant uh, vision of, um, you know, first an editor at, at Audible Originals, and then my editor at Unnamed, who was like, yeah, actually, this is this is good. Actually, we like this. Um, yeah, so it was a it was a very fraught publishing and you know like my heart was broken it took about two years to sell it the first time and then like another 10 months no another like yeah I would say about another 10 months to sell the print it's um does that make it a little bit extra delicious because yeah I mean, it, is, it is you know it it it, it, it does give me a sense of like nah, 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 you know to uh to all the people who rejected it um and uh, and so I just really hope it, you know, continues to do well because I want them to realize like they, you know, like big mistake, big mistake. Huge. Huge. Yeah. <laughs> and um, another one of the questions we've got is, um, are you in fact able to cook all or most of the things you write about in your book? I am most assuredly not. Like I'm, I'm a decent cook, you know, I like, you know, I can, I can cook. Um, but I am not, I am not anywhere near as accomplished a, a cook as Dorothy. I also don't speak Italian. Um, I, my friend, uh, Sergio, uh, um, uh, Esposito read the Italian and proofread it for me. I was, you know, like, like there are many things I cannot do that my, my, protagonist can do sorry i can roast a nice chicken i can make gnocchi i can make various sauces i can you know like do that kind of stuff but nah you can also pronounce gnocchi which i've been british i can never it's like trying to get me to say croissant properly like, it's a bit too fancy it's, uh, i come from the world of brown food um but yeah, my question, can I, I hope people don't mind if I ask another question. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the friendship with Emma Absinthe that comes up, that punctuates the book. Because like, mm. I don't even know what I want to ask, but it's like, why did you decide to give her a friend? 
and what role does that play? Yeah, so um, I gave her a friend because it's an unlikely friendship that also felt really genuine to me. Um, and Emma performs a role that's kind of like the, uh, the moral center, the moral compass for the book. Um, but, you know, as, as many literary characters are, I'm not sure how really separate they are. Um, you know, in, in many ways, they seem like two sides of a similar kind of, of coin, but, um, I guess, you know, it's as surprising to Dorothy as it is to everybody else that she, she has a friend, but you know, it, she does. Yeah. And she values, she values the friendship. It's very real. Uh, and it's a, it's a huge destabilizing, massive, uh, you know, experience for her when she questions that friendship. Yeah. It's, um, Having giving her the ability to get truly hurt, Dorothy giving Dorothy the ability to get truly hurt, um, is one of the things that like that really drew me in from you know because and I wasn't expecting it. I was expecting to purely enjoy the psychopathic nature of it because it's also clear that you've kind of done a lot of reading into what a psychopath actually is and sounds like, yeah. and you don't want to feel like oh I hope everything works out well for you. I guess, yeah, I mean, I guess like, uh, you know, part of it was like, I love, I love the Hannibal series. Now I've read them two or three times. Um, but it always bothered me that Hannibal is so good at everything and that he doesn't have, that he is an island. He, that he doesn't have any friends, that he doesn't have any, any human, like, you know, I mean, the, the, the television show is different and it's one of the reasons why I love it. But um, so in writing my version of like a a Hannibal character, it was important to me that she had failings and that, you know, she had friends. Which kind of makes it more, she has friends. She has (laughs) friends. And it's, I love the, the, like you write, it's brilliant because you write this person who's a true eccentric um, and then you just sort of, leave her on the side, leave her in a drawer for a while until you realise her. And it's, um, it's no different in some ways than Dorothy would describe an amazing set of meals. You feel like every bit is like a magic window you can open. You could have a whole book about that. But I don't know. Oh, um, another one is, um, I know you've told me this in the past, but ages before um, there was, you know, publications and deals and stuff. But like in your head, who's Dorothy? On screen. Oh, Uma Thurman. That's wonderful. Yeah, it's, it's always been Uma. Always. It's, and the look of her because she's so tall as well. And she's just, you know, it's particularly because of that moment during the Harvey Weinstein thing and she was stopped on a red carpet and somebody asked her about it and she kind of put her hand on her chest and like took a deep breath and was like, I'm, I'm not ready to talk about that, you know? And, and it was just like, the, like just the seething fury rolling off of her and the control and this like just sheer moment of will. It was, you know, like, yeah, Uma Thurman. 
I love that clip as well. Actually, there's a bit of it in my book. It's just such an astonishing moment. Um, we have another question. Uh, was Lolita, an unreliable and eloquent narrator writing a memoir on the final crimes, an inspiration? I'd love to hear your feelings on another in general. Um, you know, so I, I like, yeah, Humbert Humbert's uh, <sighs> twisted poetic mind was something that I thought about and his ability to use language to both draw the reader in and also to uh, ob obfuscate what is actually going on was uh, a trick that I that I took for this book um, that I you know the the language is something that both seduces you and keeps you from seeing the real thing. It's um, and what do like? Are you a fan of the book, Lolita? I am. You know, I like. I've read it a couple of times, and I. The way that I like to look at it, um, and I understand all of the reasons why people have issues with it, and I think Sarah Weinman's book. Um, behind Lolita that I'm spacing on the name of it. I'm sorry. It's almost two in the morning here. Um, you know, that looks at the, the Sally Horner story that was, that inspired, inspired Lolita is really smart and, and, and really puts the victim in the spotlight and it's a moral, uh, reckoning of the book, its publishing history, the crime that, you know, that created it. Um, but to me, uh, Lolita has always been an amazing road book. Like I, that, that drive that they take across the U S, um, has, that's the thing that's really stayed with me as well as the language. Um, before we have a couple of the ask other questions, I would actually like to jump in again because my question is, I know we've had a lot of questions about Dorothy and the, but I'd love to know how you created your victims because they're all yeah. very like you get to know a lot about all of the them. real Lolita. The real Lolita is Rilla. Sarah Weinman's. Thank, Thank you. you. Um, uh, yeah. Um, so it, they they just came to me. Like they were just, it was just like, this is like, it really started with the one, one specific victim. And that was the initial image that I had. And that was the first scene that I wrote. And I probably rewrote that scene more than any other scene in the book than uh, other than the ending, which I rewrote 15 times. Um, uh, and he's, he's, he's based on an Italian man that I fell in love with. Um, but everybody else was just like, you know, like, a like it, it just like, they just kind of like fiction. It comes from your brain, you know, like I, yeah. I, I, I don't know. Yeah. Where do you get your ideas from? Yeah. You know, fiction, it comes from my brain. It's made up. It's a, but I love my favorite. I must say is that I don't know how you would pronounce it. Gil or Jill. Gil. Gil. Yeah. Gil. 
Like, mm. I, and by the time he's like the third or fourth victim, you hear about it, and you know what's gonna happen. And he's just a precious, <laughs> lovely, chunky cupcake. And you're like, oh, I wish he were in a different book. <laughs> because, like, it's really sad for you that you had to be in this one. Um, yeah, poor girl. We have a couple more. Um, uh, one is, uh, uh, did you get, I have two together. One is, uh, did you get to choose the cover art? And another one is, how did you yeah. come up with the name? You didn't get to choose the cover art. No. But I, I love it. But no. <laughs> but I love it. And how did you come up with the name Dorothy Daniels? Or Dorothy Daniels? Um, it just, it came to me. It just was like, you know, Dorothy. I knew her name was Dorothy. And then I, I don't know, Daniels became her last name. Yep, that was it. It comes from your brain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I kind of like. I did. I did feel so sad about Gil as soon as I met him. I'm like, oh, I love you. Oh. <laughs> hey, you guys. It got dark Hello. here in Los Angeles. I'm it sorry, did. and I have, I have no light behind me. I'm so sorry. Uh, but this has been fantastic. I wanted to mention real quick what. Kirkus Reviews said about the book, and they said, move aside, Brett Easton Ellis. And I just think that is so fantastic because, you know, you know, you you incorporated all of that, you know, talking about this, Lori. So it just was so thorough and really entertaining. How about if we take one more question? Yeah, let's, um, have we got one more? Um, uh, we've got, will there be a movie or TV series is our last question we haven't asked. And I think that's, that's TBD. We hope so. You know, hope we don't so. know. We don't know. We hope so. I mean, I mean you know, I sacrifice the correct things to the correct gods, light some candles. I don't know. It's um, one of the things you mentioned earlier in terms of uh, Dorothy being good at things um, and or like there were some things she's not good at as opposed to, you know, Hannibal Lecter, the character being just, you know, meticulously precise at everything. I think one of the things that is threatening about this book to clearly threatening to a kind of male literary, wor literary world, as well as the fact that, she, that it, is it's very, even if you don't like gore books, there is something very satisfying about a display of extreme competence. And that's one of the reasons we read serial killer books, but it's one of the reasons you read literature in general. It's like when you find, you see somebody choose the perfect word. Like if there's, I guess if there's something I'd like to wrap up and say about this book is it is, it is a display of extreme competence and that is satisfying in and of itself. Well, thank and, you. Uh, we don't have any more questions in the thing. Um, I feel like everybody should just go read it now. Enjoy it over Christmas. <laughs> Lori Penny, I have to tell you, you're one of the best interviewers I've ever had. You you really made <laughs> oh, it super fun you. and interesting. So thank you so much. And again, guys, before we sign off, if you haven't bought the book already, just click on the green button in the middle of the screen and support your local independent bookstore. We sure appreciate it. Okay, you guys, give Chelsea a huge round of applause wherever you are. Make sure she can hear it all the way in Sweden. And have thank a wonderful you. evening, you guys. Thank you both so much. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in. This was a blast. We yeah. really appreciate your time and your business. So thanks again, everybody, from Skylight Books in Los Angeles. Good night. Sleep well. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. 
Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. I see.